Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. For many, the idea of immortality is all-consuming. Some would do anything to cheat death. One man believes he alone has the power to grant eternal life. To his followers, he is a prophet sent by the alien race that designed all life on Earth. Those who follow him will be cloned after death on an alien planet a galaxy away. They have no proof, only the word of a man who calls himself Rael, who has promised that somewhere beyond the stars is a place where his believers will prosper until the end of time. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into Raelism, a religion that spans from a small town in France to a distant world across the galaxy. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Every week, millions of people tune into television shows that explore the idea of aliens visiting Earth. They say they came in ancient times to influence human civilization. But while some only theorize about alien intervention, one man spent decades claiming to be in touch with those who created humanity. His name is Rael, and he created a movement founded on his communication with a highly advanced race of aliens. This movement, which calls itself an atheist religion, is known as Raelism. This week, we'll walk alongside Rael as he meets the alien race that would jumpstart a worldwide religion. Next week, we'll delve into the accusations of assault that drove Rael out of France and his claims that he had mastered human cloning. His followers have given him the platitudes, the last prophet, the prophet well-loved, the gardener of our consciousness, messenger of infinity, and the guide of guides. But before he was anointed with those titles, he was born Claude Vorion in Vichy, France on September 30th, 1946. During World War II, Vichy, France was occupied by the Nazis from 1940 to 1944. France, at the time of Claude's birth, was still recovering from the Nazi occupation and the scars of the war. At the same time, Claude was dealing with childhood traumas of his own. His father, Marcel, was a Jewish industrial refugee who was on the run from Nazi persecution. Marcel's last name is unknown, and most details about him have been lost to history. What is known is that Marcel was married at the time of Claude's birth, but not to Claude's mother, Colette. Marie Colette Vorion was only 15 years old when Claude was born. She came from a strong Catholic household, which means Claude's birth would have been a scandal. To make matters worse, Marcel didn't leave his marriage for Colette, although the two continued to see each other on clandestine trips. Around 1949, when Claude was three years old, Colette and Claude moved in with Colette's sister, Teresa, and their mother. 
Teresa was helping to look after Claude so much that it made the most sense for the unwed mother and her son to move in with Teresa. In an interview for the French newspaper Le Journal du Dimanche, reporter Emmanuel Chantepi asked Aunt Teresa about Claude's home life, which she described as unstable. She said Claude and his mother bickered constantly, always finding the other one at fault. It was turbulent at best. She also said that from a young age, Claude had a fierce belief in himself that could be described as arrogance. As a small boy, little Claude had two big plans for himself, to be either a pop singer or a race car driver. He's described as having a deep love of poetry and constantly singing in his spare time. Not everyone pursuing fame and fortune is a narcissist, but when you combine Claude's need for fame and described arrogance, it's easy to see early seeds of megalomania taking root. This may have contributed to the constant bickering between Claude and Colette that Teresa described. Their quarreling got so bad that Colette started sending Claude off to boarding schools just to get him out of the house. The distance may have improved their relationship temporarily, but every time he returned home, the fighting would start right back up again. To compound matters, Claude suffered the effects of an absent father. He sought constant attention and approval from his elders and peers. The desire for constant adoration is another early seed of narcissism in Claude Borion. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Both Psychology Today and the Mayo Clinic have listed parental neglect as a cause of narcissistic behavior. If parents aren't there to instill a realistic sense of self, the child will develop an overinflated sense of their own importance. They'll feel a constant need to be admired and placed upon a pedestal. In an interview with Susan J. Palmer, Claude's Aunt Teresa said, Claude suffered terribly from boarding school. We don't know the exact source of Claude's suffering, but it's important to remember many schools at this time taught strict conformity. This environment would have been anathema to Claude's individualistic personality. Claude was probably much more interested in writing pop songs than learning school rules. Additionally, Claude's non-traditional family could have made him feel othered among his peers. Even though Claude's mother was a Catholic, she failed to raise him in the structure of the religion, which also made him a pariah. While at a Catholic boarding school, young Claude took communion, even though he wasn't baptized. To the church, this is scandalous. Only baptized practicing Catholics can receive communion. Claude's actions were nothing short of blasphemy. Claude seemed blissfully unaware of how disrespectful his actions were. He said in interviews that he found the priest's agitation to be more amusing than anything. The rituals and ceremony of religion were not something he took seriously. Claude didn't share Catholicism's view on celibacy either. In interviews, Claude claimed he lost his virginity at the age of 14 to a waitress who was 20. Though he wears that like a badge of honor, the age difference between Claude and the waitress was not only illegal, it wasn't the healthiest way for a teenager to be introduced to sexuality. It's important to remember that Colette was only 15 years old when she became pregnant with Claude. Her experience likely distorted his views on sexuality. In 1962, when Claude was 15, he lost any chance of a happy reunion with his father when Marcel passed away. All we know about Marcel's passing is that Claude told Susan J. Palmer, author of the book, Aliens Adored, Rael's UFO Religion, that his father died, quote, brutally. 
Shortly after, his mother forced him to quit school and get a job, which suggests that Marcel may have been offering some kind of financial support for his illegitimate son. He wasn't upset by the idea of leaving boarding school, but getting a normal job was not going to work for Claude. He had dreams of celebrity. With a guitar in hand, the 15-year-old broke out of boarding school and hitchhiked to Paris, dreams of fame and fortune guiding his way. Claude's hitchhiking venture to Paris was slow going. He was broke, hungry, and growing desperate with each passing day. For a moment, he wondered whether he should give up and go home. But as luck would have it, a car came along that changed the rest of his life. He was picked up by a somewhat famous race car driver that he idolized. Or at least, that's what he says happened. While the validity of the story is debatable, this is the first of several occasions where Claude's life story would feature a fortuitous intervention at just the right moment. In storytelling, it's called Deus es Machina. In Claude, it shows a delusion of grandeur. His life was so important that only a hero of his could save him. Upon arriving in Paris, this race car driver brought Claude to a cafe, where they met a pair of hostesses who had just finished their shifts. According to Claude, he sang songs for them and wooed them with his remarkable talent. Then he and his race car driver host each took one of the women to bed. Other reports have described these women as sex workers. Either way, Claude wrote of this tale glowingly. He called it his initiation to lovemaking. And last stop on the way to Paris, City of Love. Claude spent the rest of his formative teen years in Paris, one of Europe's most liberal cities. It was the swinging 60s, and free love and all manner of uninhibited sexual practices were all around him, a far cry from the boarding school life he just escaped from. He spent his time singing in cafes and charming women. Claude's musical talent was eventually discovered by a radio program director named Lucien Maurice. Under the stage name Claude Seller, he was touted as a rising teen pop star and achieved some success with the song La Miel et la Canelle, which translates to Honey and Cinnamon. Many of Claude's songs were highly erotic in nature, with some of the lyrics leaving little to the imagination. In later years, he would be very proud that his songs were about his sense of sensuality. But his music career was doomed to be short-lived. After a troubled marriage with the French singer and actress Dalida, his main promoter, Lucien Maurice, died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound in 1970. At 24 years old, Claude's musical career came to a screeching halt. He was unable to find another benefactor to get behind his music. Down, but never out, he decided to pursue his second career choice, race car driving. He loved the adrenaline-filled sport. The combination of speed and danger thrilled him. He was drawn to the race car drivers. They exuded a charismatic machismo that Claude wanted to embody. It was quite the contrast to the love songs he had been singing in cafes the past few years. Around this time, Claude experienced another major life change. He met the beautiful Marie-Paul Christini, a nurse with whom he fell in love. They were married, but according to Claude, that was only to appease her traditional parents. This is speculation, but Claude's sexual promiscuity and laissez-faire attitude towards marriage could have been indicators that he was not only narcissistic, but also a sociopath. According to the book Red Flags of Love Fraud, author Donna Anderson explains that sociopaths, quote, 
crave excitement and stimulation. Sex, of course, is one of the most stimulating activities a human being can enjoy. They start young and engage frequently. Sociopaths are also born without fear or shame. Consequently, they fail to develop guilt, inhibitions, a conscience, or a sense of morality." End quote. This could also explain his disregard for Catholicism and the rules laid out by his school. Either way, it doesn't make him great marriage material. Nevertheless, Claude still needed to find a way to provide for his new wife. He was hoping to use the money he had earned in music to fund his own race car, but unfortunately, he couldn't swing it. So he chose another avenue into that field, journalism. Claude and Marie-Paul moved to the town of Clermont-Ferrand, a city south of Paris, but closer to Claude's family. Claude wrote that his mother was excited about the prospect of becoming a grandmother, so he wanted to move closer to her. Again, there's no indication of whether this was the case or a lie used to convince Marie-Paul to move where he wanted. Either way, once settled in, he launched his own racing magazine called Autopop. Autopop put Claude at the heart of auto racing. He finally got the chance to race several cars himself. It's possible Claude used the publicity of his magazine as leverage and thus talked his way behind the wheel of race cars. He didn't seem to have a problem with using manipulation to live his dream of racing cars. In fact, competing in the races was probably more important than the success of the magazine itself. Thanks to Autopop, Claude competed for the next several years and even won a few trophies. Claude has stated in interviews that racing fascinated him because the discipline and reflexes needed were almost spiritual. He loved how racing pushed him past his own limitations. Autopop also gave Claude a first-hand look at mass media. As a publisher, he saw how a common interest could draw people together. He learned tricks of the trade when it came to marketing and appealing to a larger number of people with a singular message. It's possible that this experience made Claude Vaurillon the most media-savvy of the cult leaders we've examined so far. Meanwhile, Claude was adapting to another role, father. He and Marie-Paul were new parents with two infant children. He was his own boss in a field that was a great passion of his. On the surface, it would appear to be a perfect life, but things can be far from what they appear. In the racing world, Claude befriended fellow sports journalist Patrice Vargès, who told author Susan J. Palmer that Claude was a constant womanizer, sleeping around while his wife Marie-Paul was at home taking care of their two infants. As a young boy, Claude's own mother would leave him to be reared by his aunt and grandmother. It's likely that Claude saw no reason why he couldn't leave his own children with his wife for long periods of time while he engaged in whatever affairs he wanted. But on November 30th, 1973, Claude's perfect life was thrown into turmoil when French Prime Minister Pierre Mesmer dealt the French racing industry a crushing blow. He enacted new laws which decreased speed limits on roads and made some of the most high-risk, exciting courses illegal. Because those courses were a huge draw for the sport, it basically shut down the entire racing industry in France. Claude lost his livelihood and his favorite hobby. Worse for him, he would have to return home. The idea of having to give up his philandering lifestyle and go home to a normal life with his wife and children seemed a torturous inevitability. But as fortune would have it, a few weeks later, when he most needed divine intervention, an alien race called the Elohim would reveal his true calling. 
We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. Now, the story continues. With the race car industry on the verge of collapse, Claude Vorillon was desperate. He needed a new way to both make a living and to achieve his dreams of fame and fortune. On the morning of December 13, 1973, the 27-year-old Claude claimed he was compelled to head into an area of nearby inactive volcanoes. The section of France is known as Le Puy de la Salas. The weather was overcast. The area was quiet. There was nothing to indicate that this would be the most important day in Claude's young life. But then an aircraft broke through the clouds that was not of human origin. Claude describes the craft as the size of a small bus, flat on one side, conical on the other. It had several blinking lights, a flashing white light above and a red light below. Silently, the craft landed right in front of Claude. A small humanoid creature emerged. At four feet tall, Claude described it as almost childlike. Claude has said this strange human looked at him with nothing but pure love. Soon they began speaking, the alien claiming to be fluent in not only French, but in every language on Earth. The creature said its name was Yahweh, and he was a member of a race known as the Elohim. He wore a vivid green spacesuit, which earned the Elohim the playful nickname, Little Green Men. If those other names sound familiar to you, you're not imagining things. Yahweh and Elohim are both Hebrew names for God found in the Bible. There's some controversy with fringe scholars claiming Elohim means those who come from the sky, but that has not been corroborated by mainstream academia. Yahweh teased Rael about not having his camera to take his picture. Rael said he instantly regretted not having a camera for proof, as he wanted to share this incredible story with everyone. But Yahweh said this was not the time for proof. This is a key part of the Raelian story. Yahweh and Elohim armed Rael with no physical evidence. No photographs of Yahweh or the craft were taken. No evidence of advanced technology, which would lead one to believe that this might be a fevered dream. The details, however, suggest it was more of a fanciful tale woven by the author, Claude Vorillon. Yahweh made a promise of incontestable proof being presented to mankind. But first, Claude had to complete a mission for them. He was ordered to tell mankind about this meeting, without proof. Then mankind would be judged based upon their reaction. Claude built up his armor against naysayers and doubters. He gave a narrative justification for all the absence of logic or physical evidence. This was setting up his movement to be one of believers being separated from a society of skeptics. Claude asked why he was the one chosen by the Elohim. The visitor claimed that they had been watching Claude and his progress for some time. They picked him because Claude was not a scientist and therefore could explain things simply to lay people around the world. They also picked him because he was born after the bombing of Hiroshima. According to Claude, mankind engaging in nuclear war was deeply concerning to the Elohim. They felt this was a dangerous time for man and therefore needed a new messenger for peace on Earth. That messenger would lead man away from the horrors like those seen at Hiroshima. Remember, Claude grew up in the shadow of World War II. His mother was only 15 years old and his father was on the run from the Nazis. All of this led Claude to becoming a fierce pacifist. The Eloha visitor Yahweh said he compelled Claude to the volcano using telepathy. 
He told Claude that one day he will tell all of humanity of this encounter, but for now, he must be quiet and tell no one, or the Elohim will not return. Claude didn't tell anyone of this encounter on this first night, not his wife or any of his friends. It's hard to believe that anyone meeting extraterrestrials for the first time wouldn't, at the very least, confide in someone about it. But Claude told no one. When writing his book, he probably inserted this gag order from the Elohim to explain that detail. It's interesting he kept quiet, since the Elohim were certainly placing him in a very important position on the Earth. For all the description of a peaceful mission and the feeling of love he felt from this Yahweh, it's important to point out that this story placed Claude directly in the role of a hero trying to save mankind. This narrative deemed Claude as the only person in the whole world worthy of carrying this message. This is just more evidence of his narcissistic tendencies. There have also been some inconsistencies on the exact context here. In his book titled, The Book Which Tells the Truth, Claude claims he was just hiking leisurely when he felt the pull toward the volcanoes. In later interviews, he would claim that he was going off to his office for an assignment. Either way, Claude returned the next day with the Bible, as instructed. Yahweh of the Elohim was back at the volcano, very pleased that Claude kept their encounter a secret. According to Claude, the Elohim were an advanced race, 25,000 years ahead of current technology. They were the ones responsible for the creation of all life on Earth. Yahweh pointed out in the Bible their work in genetically engineering every animal species and every genus of plant life. However, ancient people were too primitive to understand. They couldn't comprehend the Elohim as another species, so they understood them to be gods. Thus, the words Yahweh and Elohim came to mean God. In his book, The Book Which Tells the Truth, Claude emphasized the scientific aspect of the Elohim. He worked hard to demystify the work as magic. He referred to the Elohim often as both the designers and the scientists. Intelligent design is the religious belief that all life in the universe was designed by a creator. It's a theory which rejects natural selection and evolution. Here, Claude put a literal name and face to intelligent design. He claimed that the intelligent designers were the Elohim. Claude wrote that their genetic engineering is said to have created all variety of all life on Earth. The Elohim claimed DNA manipulation as their forte. Yahweh stated that the virgin birth of Jesus, as depicted in the Bible, was their handiwork. Jesus was the creation of the Elohim, with the purpose of spreading the truth of the scriptures throughout the world. The Elohim not only created humanity, according to this story, but were also guiding our development by introducing concepts of spirituality to one generation and then science to future generations. And now, they had chosen their next prophet to spread their message. Yahweh then told Claude Vorion that he was now to be known as Rael, meaning light of God, or the light of the Elohim. Rael's mission was to make people understand peace and steer humanity away from the path of nuclear weapons and great world wars. His message was to be one of pure love. Rael didn't completely drop the name Claude, not for many years at least. He would go by both names in public interviews. To his family and friends, he would still be Claude, but as the years passed, he became known only as Rael. The name Rael is derived from Hebrew. 
the Elohim said their direct descendants were the Jewish people, and therefore they were the most important. Yahweh told Rael that the Jewish people were among the Elohim's greatest success. Rael is half-Jewish by his deceased father, Marcel. It's possible this reverence toward the Jewish people in their holy land may be some kind of tribute to Marcel. It could be his way of elevating the Jewish people in light of what they went through in the Holocaust. Or it could be his own narcissistic tendencies, placing his ethnicity above all others. Rael was tasked with building an official embassy for Elohim. Yahweh told Rael that once that happens, the Elohim would arrive on earth for all of mankind to see. This condition gave Rael a convenient out when it came to a complete lack of physical evidence. The absence of the embassy gave Rael the justification he needed for having no proof. His orders received, Claude, now known as Rael, had permission to go public with this extraordinary tale. So in late December 1973, he confided in his wife about the events on the volcano. In his memoirs, Rael stated that she believed him and she was dedicated to his cause. In a rare interview years later, Marie Paul said she believed that he believed what he was saying, but stopped short of saying she believed his fantastic tale. It's likely she went along with this story for the sake of her family and children. Remember, Marie Paul came from a traditional family that demanded she and Claude be married. For those wondering why she didn't just leave him when he brought this story home, it's possible divorce was an unthinkable option for her. Their children were still just infants at the time. Uprooting a young family would be no easy task. She said in later interviews that she believed the children needed their father as they grew, and she hoped that Rael would become Claude again. Rael pieced together his notes from his several meetings with the Elohim into a manuscript, the book which tells the truth. He immediately sent it off to a publisher in Paris by the name of Marcel Julien. The publisher was very intrigued. The tale of this encounter was certainly bizarre, which made it marketable. He wanted to make a few edits before publishing, but Rael said he refused, as the message had to remain pure. It's likely that Rael did not want to relinquish any control over the story. If he concocted this, he may lose track of any edits or changes that weren't his. In order to make his story stick, he had to have total control. Fierce sense of control is another sign of narcissistic behavior. If Rael couldn't control his story, it's possible he feared being unable to control potential followers. The publisher, Marcel Julien, passed the manuscript along to a popular French talk show called The Great Chessboard. They felt Rael's story was so outlandish that there was no way he was going to be an uninteresting guest. Rael accepted with great enthusiasm. Several of the cult leaders we've examined often want to operate in secrecy and work to avoid media attention. Rael eagerly sought it out. Becoming famous was a goal he had yearned for since his youth. He tried it through singing, then through race car driving. Now he was using this supposed encounter with aliens to get his name on people's lips. On March 13, 1974, Rael appeared on the show. Dressed all in black, with a neatly trimmed black beard, he spoke softly and quietly. He came off as unassuming, charming, and even professorial. There's a small studio audience present listening to the tale of the Elohim visitation. Rael delivered his message with no hint of irony or humor. He spoke of the encounter as if it was actual fact that shouldn't be questioned. 
Jacques Chancel, host of the Grand Chessboard, would say in a later interview he couldn't tell if Rael was laughing at them all or if he really believed this. Others on the show and backstage were definitely laughing at the fantastic tale being told. However, Rael was unflappable in his conviction. When Rael was questioned about the possibility he made this entire thing up, he offered a remarkable answer. He said, quote, I just did the work of a messenger, and as such, I believe that what I'm saying is good. And if we think that what I say is false, I have such a fantastic imagination that I also deserve respect from the point of a science fiction author. End quote. Sounds like Ryle was setting up a plan B if his movement failed to take off. He opened up the path to becoming a science fiction novelist. As a magazine publisher, he had a ringside seat for the power of mass media. He had already been able to manipulate his way behind the wheel of a race car. It's possible he figured one of the most effective ways to gain followers was through print and television. And he was absolutely right. Rael found himself flooded with letters from people who believed deeply in the UFO phenomenon, who believed that humanity had been manipulated by alien influence through the centuries. Rael's tale didn't just appeal to their interest, it validated a deep belief. To many people, the belief in extraterrestrial life, or the yearning to know we're not alone in the universe, is as powerful as anything taught in organized religions. In the 60s and 70s, many older institutions were being knocked away in favor of new ways of thinking. Rael had introduced himself to a public eager for what he was offering. Rael was banking on people's willingness to believe instead of relying on evidence that could be discovered as a hoax or trickery. He used a pseudoscience practiced at the hands of aliens. He was relying on the faith of his potential followers to help the movement grow. Confident of the interest in his work, Rael finally published his story in late 1974 as The Book Which Tells the Truth. He claims that his wife gladly gave up her job as a nurse to help him in this important mission of publishing and distributing the book themselves. Marie Paul has since said she was basically waiting out this Rael phase of Claude's life, still hoping he would come back to her. It's easy to doubt Ryle's account of Marie Paul's enthusiasm. It's much more likely he manipulated her into giving up her day job to join his crusade. Ryle's book was picked up by both the curious and those looking for real answers to the great question, are we alone? Stories about UFOs and abductions were everywhere in pop culture. We've all heard the stories of Roswell and the flying saucer mania of the 1950s, Barney and Betty Hill became household names in America as the first couple to claim to have been abducted by a UFO. Those stories carried over into the 1960s, and as man ascended to the moon, the idea of another civilization descending down to Earth didn't seem so crazy. These tales of UFOs also had a big influence on 60s music. Fans of musical acts like Pink Floyd and David Bowie heard all kinds of references to interstellar adventures. There was even a band that called themselves UFO. Claude Verion would have been surrounded by the 1960s UFO zeitgeist. This was similar to how Charles Manson pulled from the 1960s music and revolutionary zeitgeist. They took ideas that captivated people and turned them into tools to control them. In 1968, Swiss author Eric von Daniken created a global stir with his book Chariots of the Gods, which suggested that ancient civilizations were actually shaped and guided 
by extraterrestrials. That same year, the iconic 2001 A Space Odyssey was released. That film also hypothesizes that Earth was visited by aliens in the very distant past. The idea of contact with aliens, either in the future or our past, was gripping people all across the cultural spectrum, and it was generating a lot of money in the marketplace. Rael urgently jumped onto this wave of science fiction. He tried to appear on as many programs and give as many lectures as he could. Even though his ideas were subject to ridicule, each appearance brought new sales to his book and potentially more believers in the Raelian message. On September 14, 1974, Rael held a public conference in Paris, which drew more than 2,000 attendees. Rael cultivated an image of a charming gentleman who was humbly bestowed with a great responsibility. He was doing everyone who heard him a great service with the message he brought. In addition to the fantastical elements of the Elohim, he preached a message of peace and love, which was most welcome in the turbulent 1970s. Rael had not only found his stage, he was finding his audience. His first attempt at an organization was MADECH, a French acronym which translates to the Movement for Welcoming the Elohim, the Creators of Humanity. Madech did have one very important member, Rael's own grandmother. According to him, when she joined Madech, she confessed to Rael that in 1947, she saw a strange craft fly by her house. This helped reinforce the idea that Elohim had been watching him for a long time. Even still, this first attempt at organizing quickly ran into trouble. According to early members, Rael would bring believers to La Puy de la Salas, the volcano region where he first met the Elohim. They would sing and pray, trying to summon the Elohim to return, all to no avail. Even still, these failures didn't deter many would-be recruits. These people saw Rael, the man who met an alien, as their closest bridge to the stars. By 1975, Madech grew to a membership of 700. Madech was a very loose organization without rules of membership or rituals of ascension. They welcomed people from all walks of life who had varying ideas on extraterrestrials and science. They held numerous meetings about how to spread their message and gain more followers. However, Rael's ideas about the Elohim were being softened by members who wanted to veer toward a less strict view of creation at the hands of extraterrestrials. Rael was losing control of his narrative, and therefore control of his followers. Like with the publisher Marcel Julian, Rael saw his grip on the organization slipping away. He made a few attempts to regain his power, but his message had been too diluted and his followers saw him as a leader, not a prophet. To them, this religion was a conversation. There was no rigidity to the rules, no consequences for diverting from the message. Realizing that he would never regain true control over his followers, he resigned as leader in June of 1975. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to cults. By June of 1975, Rael was a leader in search of a cult. At the time, he was also a media oddity, seen by most as a strange but amusing local. But he knew there was an untapped audience who were very hungry for his message. 
People who believed in unusual happenings or strange beliefs were ripe for Ryle's clutches. Every media appearance, be it a local talk show or radio interview, brought more letters, more sales, and more believers. And all of that meant more fame and more money. He could not afford to let this iron go cold. He needed to make a big impact to secure his celebrity foothold. Just a few months later, Rael had a second and even more profound encounter. Once again, when he was at another desperate low point, the Elohim appeared in Rael's life. Fall, 1975. Ryle's attempt to organize his movement had failed, with too many differing opinions entering the group. On the night of October 7th at 11 p.m., Ryle said he felt an urgent need to go outside and look up to the sky. The stars were shining brightly on this clear night. Ryle was guided by some unseen force to an area surrounded by forest. Soon, the Elohim spacecraft had returned once again piloted by Yahweh. Yahweh invited Rael onto the small craft. Yahweh told him the past two years were just a test and that it was time for Rael to advance to the next stage of his prophecy. His Eloah host spoke in a strange language and Rael felt his body turn to ice. A few seconds later, Rael was told that they had arrived. Rael's story tapped into familiar sci-fi tropes. He was bathed in a luxurious tub. He was given an exotic but delicious potion tasting of almonds. He was dressed in a loose-fitting white bodysuit. He was sent to a vast hall under a great dome filled with exquisite art and lush alien plants. He claims he was transported from Earth to the planet of the Elohim. Rael's tale has truly entered the realm of a science fiction novel. Rael's mission was ordered to establish a form of government called geniocracy, where the power is wielded by people with the highest capacity for intelligence and compassion. Rael was establishing a criteria which he could control and he himself could excel at. He determined who had the most intelligence and compassion, and he kept himself in a permanent seat at the top of that pyramid. He claimed to have been chosen by the Elohim because he had the highest capacity for compassion. Rael's journey became no less fantastic as the Elohim shared their role in the lives of great religious figures throughout history. We've already heard that they claimed to have engineered Jesus, but now they said to have also had a hand in Buddha, Moses, and Muhammad, among others. But Rael wasn't just going to hear about those iconic figures. He would meet them. Rael was led to an extraordinary banquet hall where he was to dine with a large group of both Elohim and esteemed humans. Among them were Buddha, Elijah, Jesus, even Muhammad, all present to dine with Rael. He was sitting with the most important religious figures in all of history. They implored Rael to preach the message of peace and nonviolence. Rael's mission was to follow in their footsteps, to bring humanity closer to a perfect existence. It's worth noting that Rael completely accepted his role as prophet. He felt no need to greet these other figures with any kind of reverence. According to his own account, he did not bow or genuflect. They were his equals, his colleagues on the same mission. This implies an astonishing sense of self-importance to place himself on the same level as these sanctified figures. Even in comparison to the quest for fame that had driven much of his life, this level of grandiosity was astounding. 
The New Oxford Dictionary defines megalomania as a delusion about one's own power. Claude Vorion putting himself as Rael next to these icons certainly fits that description. This is important to remember when we look at Rael's exertion of power over others upon his return to Earth. But first, there's one more important step in this adventure. Rael was taken to a machine that created a biological robot version of him. Basically a living, breathing copy of Rael, identical in every way. A clone. A quick side note, while the word clone is well established today, it wasn't commonplace in 1975. So the best phrase Rael came up with was biological robot. It is curious that the Elohim didn't know the term clone, given that they created all humanity. This biological robot was the Elohim's method of immortality. Rael could recreate himself over and over again as needed for eternity. In fact, the Jesus, Elijah, and Moses that Rael met were biological robots themselves, proof that this system of immortality worked. The Elohim presented Rael with not only proof of life on other worlds and the answer to every religion, but now the key to immortality. One has to wonder if there were any wonders Rael wasn't going to discover on this trip across the galaxy. Armed with this tale of aliens and prophets, Rael was as determined as ever to expand his movement. In 1975, he published this account in a new book called Extraterrestrials Took Me to Their Planet. He appealed to those who were certain of the existence of extraterrestrials and their intervention in human history. Some followers at the time, and former followers since, have stated that there wasn't a lot of persuasion needed. The second book, Extraterrestrials Took Me to Their Planet, can be seen as a clear beginning of realism. Before the publication of his second book in 1975, Raelian membership was around 700. But this is when the movement really started to grow. There seemed to be a sense of, I knew it, in some Raelians. They not only believed in Rael's story, it's like they were waiting for it. While some followers were certainly looking for a deeper sense of purpose in their lives, some seemed to think along the same lines of Rael when it came to the existence of extraterrestrial life. It was almost as if they could finish Rael's tale for him. Rael also brought the promise of immortality with the Elohim technology of biological robots. However, the biological robots of Elohim would only be available to the most faithful of Raelians. Believers would eventually be judged by the Elohim on their worthiness. Following the teachings and rules set down by Rael was the best way to ensure that worthiness. While Raelism eliminated the idea of a divine being which created life, it embraced the spiritual idea of eternal life. Many of his followers feared the idea of being alone in the universe. It would seem that many also feared the idea of death or no afterlife. The idea of Rael's biological robots was comforting and ensured loyalty. This prevented a schism like the one that occurred in Madech. As the Raelian movement continued to grow, Rael would soon appear in a white-robed outfit that resembled the one he wore on his visit to the Elohim planet. He wore the symbol of the Elohim, the startling combination of a swastika placed in the center of the Star of David. This controversial emblem is described by Rael as representing the choice between a peaceful paradise provided by science or a more stagnant existence devoid of pleasure. During the later half of the 1970s, Rael established what was missing from Adetch, 
ceremony, and ritual. Rael would create a hierarchy where he would appoint a kind of clergy, known as guides, who were highly trained in the Elohim message. While Rael would brand his movement an atheist religion, he followed a similar structure as those found in established religions. Raelism would even establish a baptism of new members. This wasn't using holy water. This was something called the transmission of the cellular plan. The new member would be placed in water, and then the Raelian guide held a hand to their forehead. This telepathically transmitted the genetic makeup of the new Raelian to a nearby Elohim spaceship for further judgment later on. Rael himself performed the first transmission of 40 new members on August 6, 1976. Rael also tried to get as many media appearances as he could to spread the story of Elohim. Even though he was openly mocked and scoffed at in most interviews, Rael took it with a smile because he knew he was reaching new members. Rael was careful in those early years to not come off as confrontational or hostile. He'd innocently laugh along with the critics, like, I know it all sounds crazy, but it's the truth. That charm was a key component in winning over his believers. Remember, he had no physical evidence, so he had to rely on his believability and charisma to win new followers. By 1979, Realism had grown to 3,000 members, and they were only increasing. That year, Rael published his third book, Let's Welcome the Extraterrestrials. This book established the structure of Realism. While the first two books served as the hook for prospective believers, this third book was the way to organize them. This book also used another well-established marketing tool, sex. Total sexual freedom became a clear tenant of realism. In the shadow of the free love 60s and amongst the swinger culture of the 70s, Rael capitalized on a spirit of sexual adventure bubbling over in society. It was a very progressive view. Masturbation, homosexuality, bisexuality, and numerous other proclivities shunned by many mainstream religions were accepted and encouraged with realism. The one rule was that all parties must be willing. Rael wasn't just teaching this sexual freedom in the abstract. He openly took many lovers. His wife, Marie Paul, had not agreed to this, but she went along with it for the sake of a stable household. The sexual escapade seemed to begin after he first went public with his story of meeting the Elohim. But remember, that came right on the heels of his sexual escapades while publishing Autopop. It seemed like he always had an excuse for extramarital affairs. It's evident from his constant adultery that in addition to fame and cheering crowds, rampant sexual conquests were also a very important goal for Rael. In an interview years later with The Mail, Marie Paul described in vivid detail the flagrant nature of Rael's sexual escapades. He brought numerous lovers home. If she walked in on them, he wouldn't stop and didn't care. He even made her cook or clean up after them. Hypersexuality is another symptom of narcissism. According to the American Psychiatric Association, a staggering 80% of all sex addicts are narcissists or display narcissistic tendencies. The lack of empathy for others ties closely with the need for instant and constant gratification. The problem was compounded by the fact that their children, daughter Aurore and son Ramuel, were two of Rael's most ardent followers. The children were still very young, not yet 10 years old. 
they were at a perfect age to believe without question that their father was the messenger of an alien race. Marie Paul was likely worried about shattering the image they had of their father. She soon found herself outnumbered three to one in her own home. So she went along with this nightmare. She said she prayed all the time for Rael to disappear and for Claude to return, but those prayers went unanswered. Realism would produce videos depicting scenes of sensual meditations performed in idyllic settings. There was definitely an attempt to recapture the free love spirit of the 1960s. These photos and videos would feature numerous women in various stages of nudity. There are several pictures of Rael surrounded by naked women, but if he's naked, he's hiding his own genitals, or he's completely clothed. Despite his calls for sexual freedom, it doesn't seem as if Rael is too keen on exposing himself the way his followers do. There are four dates of major significance in the Raelian calendar. August 6th marks the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima, which the Elohim say was the most dangerous day in human history. The other dates include the first Sunday in April, which was the creation of Adam and Eve. And a few dates that are pretty important to Rael himself, December 13th and October 7th, the anniversaries of the two times he encountered the Elohim. By the end of the 1970s, Raelism was firmly established on the map of fringe religions. Rael was able to spread his word across numerous television shows in Europe. Networks were only too happy to put on his fantastic story with train wreck fascination. And he was only too happy to go on those shows to gain new followers. Rael continued to smile his way through the ridicule, all the while delivering the message of the Elohim and a lifestyle of free love to all who would follow him. In the 1980s, with a marketing strategy that promised the answers to creation, the confirmation of extraterrestrials, and the promise of great sex here on Earth, Rael's movement showed no signs of slowing down. But soon, just as France had cracked down on racing, they would be cracking down on fringe religions and cults. The spotlight that Rael craved became a target on his back. Soon he would be making headlines again, not as a prophet who could speak with aliens, but as a man accused of prostitution rings and sexual assault. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really does help our show. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Tim Davis and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.